You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 608 for January 18th, 2023. On this episode, guitarist Steve Tibbetts. As I mentioned in the last episode, the Jazz Session is going to be twice a month, at least in January and February, while I work through a bit of a backlog, and then going forward, it will come out at least once a month. I was pretty committed to the whole monthly idea, but if it turns out that two times a month is not too taxing, then maybe it'll be twice a month, but at least once a month after we get through February. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, which is the monthly Patreon bonus show on which I ask that month's guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy, and Steve is on the episode that accompanies this one. If you want to hear that, you can become a member for 5 bucks a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. By the way, you'll also get early access to every episode of the show. You'll get a thank you for me on an episode, and you'll get some occasional behind-the-scenes content. You'll also occasionally get a poll from me just asking you about a thing that I'm thinking about doing with the show and what you think about it. If you like this episode, would you do me a favor and share it on your social media? It is quite literally the best way for me to get the word out. Of course, I do my best to share it on social media and to tell people about it. But when you tell your friends about it, they trust you, they believe you, they listen. So if you could take a second and do that, that would be fabulous. There's a new retrospective of the music of Steve Tibbetts. It's called Hellbound Train. Here's the opening track. Tibbets, welcome to the jazz session. It's a pleasure to be here. I I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, I really I love this anthology and the music that uh, preceded it in its original album settings. And I kind of wanted to start, if we could, just with the process of putting this anthology together, because at least according to what I've read about it, it I was really struck. It sounded like a kind of a fascinating process of how you went through and determined not only what to include, but but what fit together and and how it could piece together. Could you talk about that? Some of that comes from me having worked in a record store, the Wax Museum record store in Minneapolis, St. Paul, for, for many years after I finished working at Minnesota Public Radio. 
And I think we've all heard anthologies that were just sort of uh, stuck together like jigsaw puzzles that didn't have the right pieces in the right places. Have you had that experience? Absolutely. So you only get one shot at this, or at least I do, I think. So I took time. I got nothing but time. The kids are the kids are gone. Kids are in college. Their kids are in graduate school. So I do have the time to say, if you could put this together any way you wanted, what would you do? And the answer is, well, let's take everything you've ever you've ever done with ECM and put a little sample of the beginning uh, and a little sample of the end and map them across a keyboard the beginning of everything with the end of everything else and see what works and then make uh, a sample cd or playlist and see how it see how it works together and i was surprised at what worked and what what didn't work but eventually it began to sort of reveal itself but i kept thinking again and again about the strangest anthologies that we got in at the record store some that worked and some that didn't. There was a Beatles anthology that didn't work. There was a Sun Ra anthology that did work. It was that sort of thing. And as a as a person who put together a ton of cassette mixtapes in the 80s and then uh, burned CDs in the 90s for friends, that process you describe of like, I'm going to play the last few seconds of this tune and the next few seconds of this one to see if they flow into one another. I mean, that's that sounds so familiar to me. And it's also so obvious when that hasn't been done in an anthology. Actually, the, the mixtape that you mentioned is is quite important. I've been going through some of my old mixtapes. I remember we were on the road once and we met, uh, we played at the Cubby Bear Lounge. This is near uh, Wrigley Field, thus the, the Cubby Bear Lounge, the, the Cubs. And uh, um, a representative from Polygram handed me a pile of about 17 CDs and said, I think you'll like these. And you might think, oh no, but I'm not going to listen to these, but I did. I was heading off to to Nepal to to work, and I thought I need to have a mixtape, and I made a really good one. I listened to it not that long ago. Um, I titled it "Serious Music" because a lot of it was classical, a lot of it was from the the new the relaunch of of Nonesuch Records. A lot of it. Um, I still can't remember what it was. I, do, I I wish I would have labeled it, but I didn't. But it was a good mixtape. And that 
that sometimes lays the ground. It gives you a, a bar to that you need to to rise to. Can it be as good as the mixtape you took to Nepal in 1992? You mentioned that you uh, might only have one shot at this, although right before we started recording, I learned that at least two members of your family lived past the age of 100. So let's not count out the fact that there might be a second anthology. But assuming this is the only one, I'm curious about the emotional component of putting together a retrospective. That just feels it feels very weighty. Um, it also feels very weighty when you're still making music. Uh, I'm so I'm I'm curious about what emotions might have uh, risen to the fore while you were putting together this look over your career thus far. Well, actually, I felt pretty satisfied. Uh, there's something about working with ECM Records that instills a little bit of fear in people like uh, guys <laughs> like me from, from Minnesota. Right? I'm not in New York. I'm not sitting down for a beer with a you know, whatever, Charlie Hayden, Don Cherry, Bill Frizzell, Bob Hurwitz, people like that. So whenever I've presented something to the label, I've understood that it needs to be as good as I can get it. Can it be improved or can it be, did I over improve it? Did I over mix it? Have I overplayed here? It's got to pass muster. Because once once I hand it hand it off to somebody in the office, it's gone. Now that's been uh, thirteen CDs of my own, most of them for ECM. In listening to them, I was satisfied. I did okay. This anthology uh, draws more heavily from some albums and periods than others and was that because you found that there were some things that just couldn't be excerpted in a meaningful way uh both uh two things first of all i don't have any problem saying i was better at some periods there was a time between i guess it was a pretty long period between about 89 maybe 85 to 94 where I was firing on all cylinders. I had a good Chevy Nova with a three on the tree and things were working out very well musically. Um, so that's where the where the material seemed to work together well. The good stuff put in the right order. It's like somebody saying, as a musician, all you have to do is find the right notes and then play them well. This was just <laughs> finding finding the right cuts and putting them in the right order. Now, I did leave one record out completely, and that's your uh, YR for a couple of reasons. That was pre-ECM, even though they re-released it. But I couldn't find any way to wedge that one in there at all. At all. It's its own thing. It's like, uh, can you think of some albums that would couldn't find their way onto a, a an anthology by one of your favorite artists. Yeah, certainly. I can I can definitely think of things where there's there's just no bit you can extract that makes sense without the context of the rest of it. Okay, you tell me one, and I'll tell you one. <laughs> Sorry to put you on the on the spot. Uh, you've put me on the spot. I well, I will say uh, one that strikes me is probably because I was just listening to this is Ascension by Coltrane. I think it would okay. be hard to excerpt that. Well, bingo, because I would say I would say a Love Supreme. What would you pull out of there? No, that's a great point too. Yeah, although uh, which is not to say after having worked in jazz radio for many years, not to say I have not heard 
uh, parts of a love supreme pulled out and put on an anthology but i agree with you without the whole it's just not the same thing yeah (laughs) right that's gotta happen right at the right spot i even uh, even if there was a, a second more delay between those two pieces it wouldn't work yes agreed and there there's some in your world there are some uh, Miles Davis albums that are like that too. And that's probably because of the producer. That's probably because of Teo Maceo, you know? Uh, you mentioned this in passing a moment ago, but uh, during some of the time that's represented by this anthology, you traveled extensively. And actually, I've I re- read a lot of your uh, writing, at least the stuff that I that I could find, for example, on your on your website and, and other places. And um, one thing I couldn't quite pin down was the nature of the travel you were doing. Uh, I, I thought it was co- connected to Naropa University, but I wasn't 100 percent sure. And. It seems to be both sometimes musical and sometimes non-musical. So I'm, I'd am i love for you to just say a few words, uh, and I know we're probably talking about encapsulating a large amount of data in a few words, but anything you could say about it, I would find enlightening. No, it's, it's pretty simple. I got a job teaching uh, a recording and two classes, a recording class and a guitar class at what was then Naropa Institute, summer of 85. And they were just about to launch their... Uh, study abroad programs and I said hire me and for some crazy reason they did I was their on the ground uh, adjunct um, commander I guess I took care of uh, visas hiring adjunct faculty balancing the books arranging transportation arranging evacuation if that that was necessary And, and then they gave me a card that said Steve Tibbetts, Director of Health and Well-Being. Now, what does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) But um, that was my job, and I did a pretty good job at it. So they hired me for the spring program in Indonesia, and that went back and forth between Kathmandu, Nepal in the autumn, and then Ubud in Bali in the spring. That, That was the job, and it was a great job. That was between... 85 until my kids were born in 97 uh, most years the other the other part was yeah i uh like many somewhat non-commercial musicians i take advantage of the largesse of of the political realm uh grants and um money given to artists and the state of minnesota is very good at that so i ran at naropa institute i uh 
took a class from a great gamelan teacher named Inuman Paksumande, a dalan, a puppeteer who could play, of course, every instrument in the gamelan ensemble. His job was to, to in during the summer session, create a, a reasonably well-sounding uh, gamelan ensemble with students who were completely new to it. We were both faculty there, and we were both we both uh, went to the same bank at the same time to cash our checks. I said, Paksumande, how are you doing? And he said, very good, Steve, very good. And I said, just off the top of my head, if I get to Bali, would you teach me drumming? And he said, sure, why not? I said, what's your address? And he said, just write Paksumande, Denpasar, and they'll get it to me. I thought, <laughs> I hope so. But he wrote back, a beautiful letter typed on an ancient Olivetti uh, typewriter on on paper that was half bamboo shoots, it seemed like, and it passed muster. So they gave me 12,000 bucks to go study with him and, and uh, um, come back and write music with it. So there were both things, work and uh, being able to to get grants and travel. And beyond that, if I was working or working on a grant, there's always you're always somewhere to either begin the trip or end the trip, as you know. So you've probably worked in Europe or in, in Asia. Asia, in Asia. Yeah. Where did you go? Where did you? Work? Uh, I lived in Japan uh, several times. So what, what were you doing there? The first time I was a student. Uh, then after that, I was a journalist. Well, there you are. You, you're a plane flight away from Beijing. From Indonesia, you're probably three hours from Kuala Lumpur. That's what happened to me. The program would end. We'd wrap it up, button it up, store everything, put everything in, in bags, wave goodbye to the students at the airport, and then party up. I could go wherever I wanted. South South Asia, India, you know, Cambodia, Burma. So there was time there. Let's take a couple of weeks. Of course, I wanted to always wanted to come home to pasta and ice cream, but sometimes you just couldn't turn down the opportunity to travel. When you were traveling, especially when you were just traveling, uh, you know, kind of on your own steam and with your own agenda uh, after the the work sessions had ended, were you were you trying to find, you know, here's the here's the next thing I might incorporate into the music that I make or did those things just happen to occur sometimes? I just wanted to see things. Probably in Japan. Did you travel up and down the islands? I did, yeah. You probably saw things that made you kind of stop in your tracks. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's it. That's what I wanted. And I found those. That's what I wanted. I wanted I'd, I'd hear of uh, a place to go. And that would also be from talking to other people, other expatriates who were working over there. Where should I go after I finish my gig? And they'd say, oh, you have to go to this weird temple in South India. Or they would say, if you've never had South Indian food, get there. Or uh, a friend of mine named Bo said if you're ever in rangoon come and visit and i think you shouldn't make that offer idly because you're going <laughs> to see me on your couch 
Uh, yeah, I've spent the last two years uh, traveling the United States in a van. And many times during the course of that, somebody on social media will message me and say, hey, if you're ever and I always show up and I always tell them, you know, don't just idly say that to be polite because I'll be there. And, I know, I know. Yeah. <laughs> Get a couch ready. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, OK, well, I'll tell you publicly if you're in the Twin Cities and I'm here, you're welcome to stay at our house. Uh, sounds like you and I are going to meet then at some point. Well, so. <laughs> there's, there's nothing that happens here. So there's there's that <laughs> danger when when people from Asia said, I'll come visit you. And I think, what are we going to do? We go to the Walker Art Center, but there's nothing else. There's really nothing there. We could you could drive up to Bob Dylan's hometown if you want, but it's just a house where he grew <laughs> <Right>. up. <laughs> Although I remember um so the first time I lived in Japan, I was a, a student and I stayed with a host family. And then they came the following summer to uh, upstate New York, where my family lived at the time to visit. And, you know, that we lived in a small town in upstate New York, uh, you know, just as you described that, well, although significantly smaller than the Twin Cities. But uh, I thought, oh, my gosh, they're going to come here. There's going to be zero to do. They were as excited to spend hours walking around the large local grocery store. I mean, we. Honestly, if we had just done that and they had flown back, they would have considered their trip a success. So I was always surprised by the things that they would be excited to see uh, that I, you know, were just so mundane to me, but that they were quite, quite thrilled to get some time with. That's true. I I have friends from Lhasa that would think that Rapid City, South Dakota was the end of the universe. <laughs> they felt like they'd gone to Mordor or something. Or let's put it on, put it on a, a better spin on it. Like they've gone to the Shire. Okay, say. yeah. I'm gonna say I don't think Rapid City will be hiring you to write their tourist brochures. Well, <laughs> it's actually, like a trip uh, to Mordor. No, <laughs> a friend of mine. Uh, I was visiting him in Fargo, uh, and he said, "Do you want to go look at the flat?" And I said, "What?" And he said, "The flat. Let's drive out by the Crystal Sugar Plant and look at the flat." And I said, "Hey, whatever, Jimmy." But we drove out and it was the flattest thing I've ever seen in my life. You could see it was like you're on top of Mount Everest. Wow. Re it really was the flat. And he said, this is where snurt starts up. And I said, snurt? He said, yeah, uh, there's so much farming around here that in the in the early winter, we have uh, dirt mixed with snow and we call it snurt. <laughs> Where it's would a... I have learned that except by <laughs> driving out to the flat by the crystal sugar plant? It was yeah. it's the bottom of a prehistoric inland lake and it's it's ruler flat. Yeah, the the all, almost always say yes to the question, do you want to see rule has served me pretty well. There are some <laughs> times when you got to use your judgment, but uh, most yeah, of the time and I've you should it. come and visit me, too. They I, they say that at their peril. Yes. I did an interview with these two guys from the Isle of Man, and mm -hmm. it sounded it sounded so interesting. I don't want to just go there to see their motorcycle races or the cats with no tail. I just want to walk around. So they're in for a shock next year. <laughs> Let's take a quick break from the interview to talk about Patreon. 
If you become a member of this show for $5 a month, first of all, you're helping me not only create the jazz session, but actually keep the archives of the last 15 years online. That is surprisingly expensive. It costs a lot more than you would think to keep all of those episodes available because it's not just the storage, it's also the bandwidth of people downloading hundreds of episodes. And people really do go back into the archives and download things. And so to keep all that going costs money, and that is the majority of where your donation goes to. But you get things for it, too. For example, you get early access to every episode. You get a bonus episode that goes along with each main episode called This I Dig of You, on which the guest from the main episode talks about something non-musical that they're enjoying. Plus, you'll get behind-the-scenes information. You'll get the occasional note from me with stuff no one else knows about. You'll get thanked on an episode, too. How do you get in on all that? It's super easy. Just go to thejazzsession.com slash join. That'll direct you to Patreon, where you can become a member for just five bucks a month. Each month, I like to thank three members of my Patreon community. This month, a tip of the cap to Vincent Baker, Josh Rutner, and Edward Fetter. You're the bee's knees. Now, back to the show. I wanted to uh, bring uh, Mark Anderson into this conversation. You you mentioned earlier, um, you know, asking to be taught uh, drumming, and in your music, the the drums have a a primacy. I, I don't know. That seems a little silly to say about you know. This, in most of the music that appears on a show called the Jazz Session, there are drums, and they have a, a pretty clear and meaningful role. But even in the way like drums are mixed on your recordings i mean they just they're very upfront and they seem integral to the creation of the music uh not in an unusual way or an uncommon way but in a really marked way so i just wanted to ask about your your partnership with with mark and your thoughts about uh drums in your music in general it's not just the way Mark plays, it's his personality and his, uh, uh, I don't use the word wisdom lightly, but but he's wise enough to say, we can try it your way, Steve, but just, uh, you know, leave me some time to, to take a crack at this my own way. This is what happens when you work alone too much, like I do. I'll have ideas about how we might approach some phantom pulse in a piece of music. And he'll he'll go along with this and then say, let me try. Let me just try on my own. And then he's always right. I think, what was I thinking? Beyond that, beyond being a brilliant musician, a great drummer, uh, a connoisseur of space and time, he's easy to travel with. Okay. And he's uh, been like a brother to me in the ups and downs of the life of a musician. I asked him, what do I do now? And it's not about it's not a question about music, too. And he's he's good. 
So um, I've been lucky. I don't know if I would be making, I wouldn't be making the music I've made, I've made without him. But there are sometimes I might not have continued without without his counsel, good graces, and insight into how life is and could be. When you say uh, you might not be making the music you're making without him, besides you know just the obvious removing that element, of course, would change the music that you've that you've created with that element. But has it changed the way you play the guitar? Yeah, I have to keep up with him. <laughs> I have to be as good as I have to be as good as he is. If he's if he is bleeding and this has happened, I better start bleeding too. Oh, you mean that literally? If he's playing so I hard do. that he's bleeding. Yeah. Well, sometimes drummers, especially hand drummers, get they get calluses on their hands that are that are a little too thick and that he gets what are called splits. They'll say, Oh, I got a split, and I'll look over and and his conga. Sorry, this may be too graphic for your show, but it's covered in blood. Wow. And I think, well, uh, we're done. And he said, let's take another run at it. And I went, <laughs> okay, if you want to. And uh, that sometimes is, is the one we keep. And sometimes in order to create a vibe in the studio, so it's not too inbred, I will be playing electric guitar with him though it'll be through the board, not through an amp. I don't want to leak into leak my sound to leak into the microphones. But I have to keep up and, and sometimes I'm hurting as much as he is, but not bleeding. That only happened once. Uh, and that was at a at a gig in Montreal where I walked into a sign on the way to the stage. <laughs> Which is a kind of art in its own way, but Possibly yeah, it was not, really cool. Yeah. It was really the, the, and you know what the sign said? The sign said dangerous. It said dangerous. <laughs> uh, my guess was going to be duck, but I like danger quite a bit too. No, but, no, uh, I yeah. cut my head and we started started playing, and Mark looked over at me and and uh, sort of laughed, and I realized that I had blood coursing down my face. The crowd went wild. It was like a a kiss concert or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. I wanted to ask several places in your writing, you have referred to your acoustic guitar as having a small concert hall inside it. And I'm really curious to know more about that. I don't know that much about how guitars age, but I do know how two guitars have aged, two 12 strings that I own. And they seem 
either to have changed over time. The wood has changed, or I found the right strings, or found how to play it so that I can create that little concert hall sound in it. Almost a... Well, that's my dad's guitar. That's not gonna that's not gonna show it so well. But there's a way that any instrument has an internal resonance, and if you find the right notes in the right spot, there'll be a a reverberative echo that sounds like you have another player with you. Like in Indian music having a a, a sarangi or a sarod in the background. Or um, you, you're familiar with Jan Garbarik's music. Yes, very much. In the Hillier Ensemble. Jan told me that they would, this is how they did sound checks. I was so jealous because, you know, sound checks can take hours for crazy bands like I have sometimes on the road. Their sound check was to go into a cathedral and, and sing. Some of the, some of the singers. And Jan would play a few notes and they would find where the reverberant quality of the cathedral was. And then they would adjust their bass note to that cathedral. Oh, they wow. would all tune up a little pitch and say, well, we're going to be between B flat and B for this concert because it resonates well. And then I said, and that was it. And Jan said, well, if we had a full house, it would change a little bit, but we'd be aware of that. So that's what my guitar is like now, the 12-string Martin that I use. I know it very well. I would say I'm, that's also true of my the Strat, the Stratocaster that I've had since 1980 and uh, the Marshall amp I have. I know those very well, too. In the case of the acoustic, does it require very particular uh, miking techniques to be able to hear that on recordings? Yeah, I try to find the resonant spot where I can hear a harmonic. Are you a musician? I am, yeah. Yeah, I'm hearing that. What do you play? Uh, saxophone and cajon. Oh, wow. Um, you've got both ends of the spectrum working there. <laughs> yes. Um, well, I, I position one mic near the bridge, and I try to find the natural uh, harmonic uh, the fifth which is present and the and the octave and to some extent the the more obscure third and then i position then i pull that mic out and bring another mic a little closer to the 12th fret and try to find the same place okay and then i listen to them in stereo i pan them left and right and think is that it is that wide and big and cool and it isn't it never is but i'm close and so I've never seen you play in person. Are are you a, a performer who tends to sit fairly still? Like the thing, the things you're describing sound very delicate, in a you know in a sense, or or precise maybe is a better word than delicate. Are, are do you sit still, quite still, when you perform, so that you can retain those orientations and that kind of? I stand still. Stand still. Okay. And these days, most uh, front of house people, sound people, don't like your guitar. And a microphone, especially a a kind of woofy resonant guitar like a like a, a Martin. They like they like you to have a pickup. I don't like that so much, but I've never found a solution. I've tried to combine them. I've tried everything, and 
they always end up using the pickup. That's kind of, that sounds very frustrating. I'm frustrated on your behalf. <laughs> that sounds very frustrating. Well, to if it were a solo concert, if you uh, do you know uh, Ralph Towner's uh, album just called Solo Concert. Of course. Yeah. Great. one. Oh, man. I mean, even just the picture. This was before ECM, before I was with ECM. I picked I think it was. Yeah, it was. I picked up that album, flipped around the back and saw the picture of ralph playing in front of two neumanns at at the uh, the america center in, in munich and i thought i'm gonna i like this record already <laughs> and and it's incredible can you believe that how he plays and how well it's recorded yeah it's so true I wanted to uh, we are we're talking in an audio uh, medium, but it's easy enough for folks to uh, Google or even better purchase a Hellbound Train and see the cover. And the cover involves fire. And uh, based on a, th uh, a thing that I, I read uh, somewhere in your writings, I thought I would just tell this very brief story, which is that years ago, I finished a job that I really, really hated. Um, and it featured a uniform. And so when I had <laughs> finished the job on the on the final day, I came home and my younger son and I went out in uh, the front yard and put the uniform in a metal bucket and set it on fire. And <laughs> it was something very cathartic about uh, and I hope instructive uh, for him about, about watching that thing burn. And so just based on some things that I've I've read uh, that you've written, I, I, I have a feeling that that might resonate with you, even if maybe you have similar tendencies, but different motivations uh, where that kind of thing is concerned. I'm, I'd be curious to know. Well, I'll tell you. What, what was your job? Uh, I worked for a, a fairly brief but too long to me time in a, a FedEx shipping center. <laughs> One of those times when I was kind of trying to make ends meet and that, yeah. was, that was required. So. Sure, sure. Well, I, I, I've always had to work other jobs and make ends meet. I work as a, uh, as a licensed practical nurse now, alternate weekends, but... I don't think I'm going to burn my scrubs unless something <laughs> really, really goes off. <laughs> it would really have to be bad. Uh, you're probably referring to the cover of um, A Man About a Horse. I had a, a leather jacket that I loved. Really, I, it was, you know, my motorcycle jacket when I had a, a tiny little Honda 175. But that Honda 175 seemed like my ticket to freedom when I was 16 years old. I wore that jacket all over the world and I couldn't stand to throw it out, but it just rotted to pieces. So we, we put it up on a, on a beach and doused it in Coleman fuel and set it on fire. 
but as far as and took a picture of it and then i took the pictures with me to uh munich and manfred said this one so all right all right <laughs> and he said what is the name of this record steve and i said um 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 a man about a horse and he said a man about a horse and i thought okay don't say anything and it passed muster <laughs> years ago as part of working in in bali we had uh i, I was not uh part of the management i was the as i mentioned i was sort of the uh, organizer the on the ground guy i would get there early and stay late and make sure that nothing went was too untoward but one of the the group leaders uh judy leaf an old friend of mine uh, had a women's group but her her then no that was barbara dilly her it was she had a women's group and her then husband um bob said well, well then we're going to have a men's group and i thought oh, all right do i have to be part of this i really don't want he said come on let's go out we're all going to go out to dinner all the guys in the group and we, we were sitting around eating and and um bob said what makes us different as men and we couldn't really think of much except one guy said we like to set things on fire and i thought yeah yeah for better or worse we do <laughs> And I always, as a kid, I always like to set things on fire. There's a, there's an entire trend on, uh, uh, particularly on TikTok these days, of um, people throwing large stones uh, into water. Uh, that is usually prefaced by, you know, here's one for the men, and uh, obviously. In the year of our Lord, 2022, we know a lot more about gender than we used to. But taking that as read uh, there, then a million people will always, uh, you know, kind of repost that video with their own reactions to, to just the very satisfying sound of a large stone splashing into the water. And there's something I'm not sure it's necessarily uh, gender related, but there is something very primal about that experience. And I, I feel similarly about hmm. just the concept or the the feeling of setting something on fire. And as I say that out loud, I realize that makes it sound like I could possibly be a pyromaniac or a, you know, weekend arsonist. I don't think either of those things are true, but there is just something satisfying about fire in what seems like a fairly easy to understand way, given the evolution of the human species. Yeah. And especially when you combine Coleman fuel, fireworks <laughs> and friends. Yeah, exactly. What could go it's wrong? It's a cookout. <laughs> Who, it's always the guy at the barbecue, isn't it? You know, with a little hat. Ah, <laughs> uh, that's so my right. My son, uh, my son told me um, this is, but things have progressed now. My son sent me a link to a site he likes a lot called Will It Blend. You know that one? I do actually. Yes. Yeah, he said, watch him do an iPhone, uh, iPhone eleven or something. <laughs> <laughs> Will it blend? Uh, the answer is yes. I. <laughs> I got to say, uh, I don't know how many thousands of these interviews I've done at this point now, but uh, this is one of the rare ones where we have ended up on a place just so far from where <laughs> I thought we were going to end up. And those are the, always the most delightful interviews. Like if we I feel like if we just started the interview right now, we would we could record a half an hour of 
absolutely non-musical conversation that would be just as much fun as talking about all of the music, which always makes me really, really happy. Mm-hmm. However, we have uh, come uh, to the end of uh, this interview. My guest is Steve Tibbetts. There's a new anthology of his music selected by Steve himself. It's called Hellbound Train. I highly recommend it. And then once you've heard the anthology, you should go and buy all the albums uh, from which it's taken and the ones uh, that don't appear in the anthology. Steve, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I thank you so much for taking the time to do it. It was it was a great time. Rem- remember to ask yourself, will it blend? Thanks to my guest this month, Steve Tibbetts. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. Hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at the Jazz Session. Take a second right now, if you would, to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really helps me reach new listeners. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, my poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you value what you just heard, become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.